Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It's not uncommon to hear discussions about mental health issues in the prisons. Of late, there have been many discussions about the number of suicides in the prisons. Sina Fazel is a psychiatrist at the Center for Suicide Research and is also a professor of psychiatry at the University of Oxford in England. He kindly joins us to discuss this problem. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Again, we read with interest that there are changes in the frequency of suicides in the prisons. And in reference to the article that you published in Lancet Psychiatry, in which you compiled this data, how much of a change has there been? Obviously, that's the first question. And attached to that, which we'll get to, is why is it occurring? You would think prisons would be a controlled environment. Yes, the broad picture in perspective. We looked at prison suicides in 24 high-income countries over a four-year period, 2011 to 2014. And we found that compared to people in the general population who are of similar sex and similar age, suicide rates were higher in men by about threefold and higher in women by ninefold. So there was a clear difference between people in prison and people compared to people in the community. And by prison, in the article, we, we mix jails and prisons because many countries don't have the separation. I mean, people who are in jail are, are described as being in prison. It's just a terminology thing in some countries. Nevertheless, what we found is this clear difference in people in prison versus people outside prison. And in relation to your question about whether there's a trend over time, so we did look at this. There wasn't a lot of data to look at trends over periods of time. But in, in the few countries that we were able to look, there weren't a lot of clear trends that were visible. If anything, there was one country, which was Scotland, where suicide rates in prison had declined, been, had been going down over the previous decade. And that's probably explained by the fact that Scotland introduced more intensive treatment for drug problems, opioid substitution treatments in their prisons. And that might be the explanation as to why it's gone down in prison in Scotland. For other countries, there weren't clear trends. And if anything, prison suicide rates haven't gone up or haven't gone down. They've remained quite high compared to the general population. So why is it happening in relation to your second question? That's been a focus of quite a lot of work over many decades. And a lot of the emphasis, a lot of the research has shown that there are a range of risk factors that people bring in with them. They import them into prison. So these are individuals who have already some vulnerabilities from their earlier lives before they're in prison. And then there are also some triggers and stresses in prison that add up. And, and it's really the accumulation of these more distal risk factors, the vulnerabilities, and then the, the triggers, the more proximal risk factors that seem to accumulate. And we, we know from suicide research in other settings, that it's really the sort of accumulation of risk factors that seems to be important in explaining why some people die from suicide and some people don't. So you can't really put your, you can't say there's one thing that's happening or it's a one or two factors. It's usually an accumulation. Outside prison, I mean, what people are coming in with, some people are coming in with long-standing mental health problems, but quite difficult childhood deprivation and abuse in some cases, drug and alcohol problems. And inside prison, these are sometimes being exacerbated or worsened because of lack of treatment or because of bullying, victimization, or the, the difficulties in relation to a 
breakdown in families if you're in prison and, and the, the stresses associated with that. So they may all be features that lead individuals to sort of accumulate hit the risk factor hits in a way. And and, and we know that well generally that that's really the way to think about I think suicide generally is that it's about accumulation of, of, of a range of factors, some which are distal and long standing vulnerabilities and some which are more proximal and act as triggers. You mentioned in your article, and I thought it was quite interesting, that where there were higher rates of incarceration, there seemed to be, if I read it correctly, seems to be more of a suicide issue. And that may be because of the nature, the psychological makeup of the person who was incarcerated. Is that from lesser crimes, greater crimes, drug crimes? Can you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, so what seems to be the, the trend that we found was that if there are high rates of incarceration, so, you know, classically, the, the U.S. is an example of a country with very high rates of incarceration, but there are many others, in, in, including in, in um, South America and in some countries in, in Asia as well. They're actually associated with lower rates of suicide, so it's slightly counterintuitive because you think that, oh, if there's high rates of incarceration, maybe it's more stressful, it's more overcrowding, there's less services, but actually that doesn't seem to be the, the evidence. The evidence suggests that the higher the rate of incarceration, so more people per head of population in prison, the lower the rate of suicide. And one explanation for that would be the people that are going into prison in countries which incarcerate more per head of population have less of these vulnerability factors because actually people are being incarcerated for less serious crimes. So for instance, if you have a country like Norway or Denmark, which have very low rates of incarceration, it's only people with who've committed quite serious offences, usually violent offences, that go to prison. And these are people who may also be more vulnerable for other reasons. If you compare that to a country where there's higher rates of incarceration, like the US, where, for instance, people may be going on lesser charges, like, for instance, possession of drugs or, or more minor types of burglary and robbery, there are people who are a little bit more like the general population, so they have less vulnerabilities, you know, less combination of vulnerabilities, less mental health problems, less maybe serious drug and alcohol problems. And that would be one explanation. The other explanation, which other work has shown, so this is based on systematic reviews of risk factors. We did one such review about a decade ago in 2008, that we found that risk factors for dying of suicide in prison is if you're in a single cell, which is counterintuitive finding. It may be something to do with the fact that if you're in shared cells or even in, in a sort of with, with many other people in, in a shared cell, that may be protective because actually there's less opportunity. It's more difficult to obviously to, to arrange a situation where you can hang yourself, which is how most people die, or create a ligature, which is how most people die in prison or even overdose. So the opportunity is reduced. And we know that when people make a decision about dying from suicide, it's very temporary and in, in a way it's almost impulsive many cases, it becomes less difficult to act on that impulse than if you're in a single cell. The other reason may be that actually people are put into single cells because of underlying health, mental health and drug and alcohol problems. And so you're actually selecting a group of people who are already at high risk. So there's two possibilities around the issue about single cells. The problem is that doesn't, of course, suggest for policy, in terms of policy, that there should be um, you know, overcrowding should be a policy, you know, a policy response to suicide in prison. All it's saying, I think, is that is that how you, you know, your penal policies in relation to sentencing do impact on your suicide rates and also on an in individual level in a prison. If someone is at high suicide risk, 
you need to think quite carefully about whether putting them in a single cell is overall the right thing to do. Of course, you have to consider lots of other issues in terms of their, their mental state and other issues in relation to how they're interacting with other people. But, but nevertheless, that needs to be a consideration on an individual level. Do you find in the material that you reviewed, the background of this question is actually when I had worked in the jails, the role of clergy was incredibly important. Was there any suggestion that if people had a sense of connection to a religion that they were less isolated, that they seemed to be less prone to suicide? Do you have any data along that line or perhaps it doesn't exist? I don't think it exists. So I haven't seen any high quality data. I think there is some important sort of qualitative information which does suggest that connections with other people in prison, including clergy or chaplains and family in particular, is important. So I've seen work that looked more generally at the whole issue of having visitors, having regular visitors, and, and that being a, a protective factor. But I haven't seen anything specifically around I found in, in preparation for talking to you an interesting article came out of England about the impact of using dogs in prisons because I guess it's like anything. It's a contact with a living entity. Do you know about that sort of thing? Is it common or was this, a, this an isolated article? Well, I know that kind of thing in relation to mental health units. So there are a number of mental health units that have experimented with this, piloted this. And they do find some that it does actually calm the ward environment generally, the inpatient ward environment generally. In prisons, I don't know about this, I must admit. And, and a part of that must be something to do with our resources because prisons in many countries, including in England and Wales, you know, there aren't a lot of resources. And where there are resources, they, we're, we're currently struggling with making sure that illegal drugs, particularly novel psychoactive substances, aren't going into prison. So where I've seen drug dogs is often in the visitors area where people are going into prison to check if there's any illegal substances going in, including mobile phones. So, so I don't know, I don't think it's been a regularly thing that's being rolled out. I found the article and I found it most intriguing. And I know that here in hospitals, uh, mental health hospitals and in hospices, having an animal in the unit can make a very positive impact on patients. And it just seemed like a logical extension in some ways that it would also go into the jail. So I had to ask. I had to ask. Yes, yes, yes. You said that most of the suicides are by hanging. I guess that's because that would be the easiest way to have something with which to kill oneself. It's mostly hanging. That's right. That's exactly right, yes. And, and there are a small minority of suicides which are linked to overdoses. So people are hoarding medication or getting hold of medication from other prisoners. But the majority is, is using ligatures. Broadly speaking, it could be called hanging, but it's, it's about ligatures, so often attaching sheets to points in cells, including bars outside, or there may be ligature points inside cells, and using that as a way of ligaturing yourself. Do you know, and I, I thought of this in driving here this morning, so I didn't have a chance to research it, nor have I given you the opportunity to research it if, if it's material that exists. Outside of jails, people leave notes. Dear mom, I love you. I'm sorry. I couldn't stand this anymore. Take care. Are there notes in prison suicides? Do people do that type of thing or not? Do you know? 
So again, I mean, they, they do, yes. So there is qualitative work, and it does show that people do have to make these sort of final acts before they die in prison, including writing suicide notes. So that that is definitely similar, as you find outside. That is similar. You mentioned that Scotland had a very good intervention mental health program. How is it characterized? What do they do that's different than perhaps in other countries? Well, I think the advantage of Scotland is that it's it's not a very large country, so that you, if you do make an intervention, so my understanding of Scotland is that there's just a lot more attention being paid to drug treatment inside custody. So these are particularly around opioids, so heroin, and there was you know a very careful reviewing of the evidence and then implementing some evidence-based treatments. And those changes were made partly in relation to concerns about HIV in in the 90s, and they were introduced in the 2000s, and, and then, as I said, over the decades that we looked at, there was a decline in a reduction in suicide rates. But we know, I think, more generally speaking, that good quality care for drug and alcohol problems, particularly opioid, opioid addiction, is associated with a range of better outcomes. So, not just reducing suicide, but there is also some evidence that it reduces repeat offending and we know from some actually some trials that were done a trial done in Connecticut where they looked at post-release outcomes and they found also post-release less drug use in people given opioid substitution treatments. So I think there's convergence of evidence for the importance of having good evidence-based treatments and I think that almost starts at the beginning you know so there's also needs to be treatments for people who are acutely withdrawing from some drugs and particularly and alcohol clearly and then beyond that for people who've got dependence type problems then it would be coming up with programs which address those problems with medications like methadone and buprenorphine. Some of the things in Scotland that were introduced, and I think more broadly is what I'm saying is that there is evidence done in research which shows the importance of having drug treatment programs and alcohol treatment programs for a range of outcomes. So even assault rates, suicide rates, self-harm rates, and then post-release reoffending and post-release drug use. Do you have a sense that the material that you're studying and the production of the reviews like you did in the Lancet Psychiatry, is it making much of an impact in the world of those who run the prisons and the political people who fund the prisons? Do we see any trends from your perspective? Is it getting better? I mean, that's a really important question. I mean, as um, it's difficult sometimes to put your finger on, 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 on what's taken up and what, what type of evidence to decide to, to act on. And usually you don't know. I mean, they usually it, it doesn't come back to the people who've done the research. I think that there is a general increasing awareness among people in policy and in, in the relevant Ministry of Justices all over the world that treatment of mental health problems is really important in prisons. So I think that message has been getting through the last 15 years or so. And you can sort of see it a little bit in so, you know, prison treatment guidelines. You see more emphasis being placed on the identification, but not just the identification of mental health problems, but the treatment of mental health problems. So I think that's a very important part of all this, because actually one of the most modifiable risk factors that we know in relation to prison suicide is psychiatric disorders, in particular clinical depression, but also clearly other severe mental disorders, such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. The other schizophrenia 
spectrum disorders, they all need to be actively treated. We know that treating those in other settings is associated with a reduction in suicidality. So I think that awareness is important. And then uh, I think further, there's a little bit more focus on, on the whole issue of prison suicide. So a few countries in their national suicide prevention strategy have included prisoners. And that, I think, has been has come out of prevalence-type research, so research like this that has highlighted that this is a high-risk population. So I know, for instance, in England, it's part of the suicide prevention. In New Zealand, it is, and in Ireland, it is. So in a few countries, there's entered the important document that guides service development and service provision in all settings, and it's highlighting high-risk groups as being one way of reducing suicide rates in the population. And among the high-risk groups are prisoners. Material like yours, I can give it to my Congress people and say, please just read it, or at least just read the summary. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a problem, and it's very short-term thinking, because actually, if you don't deal with this, the longer-term costs are much more. So if you're just thinking in an economic hat, it's very narrow and it's counterproductive because the long-term effects on family, on children, also if people survive a suicide attempt, their mental health needs to be addressed. They will go back to the community and consume a lot of resources if they're not, if the opportunity isn't taken early on to address their problems. I so agree. This is very good work, and I applaud you for it, and I'm looking forward to continuing to read the product of your work. Dr. Sina Fazel is, the, is a psychiatrist at the Center for Suicide Research and a professor of psychiatry at the University of Oxford in England. And, sir, thank you very much. Important material. It's something that we definitely need to study because it is becoming a larger and larger part, unfortunately, of our population, both in the world and here in the United States. Thank you so much. I do appreciate your time. Thank you. Great.